I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. My guest this week is Angelo Bacque, founder of Bacque Creative, CEO of Awake New York, and formerly brand director of Supreme. Though Angelo is a businessman, he's also positioned himself and his company as more than an apparel company. It's about giving back, he has said, using my position to try to bring more awareness. In order to do that, you also have to make some dope apparel, sneaker collabs, and other products. Welcome, Angelo. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Good to have you. So how do those things work together? Which comes first, uh, you know, the business or the activism? The chicken or the egg? Yeah. <laughs> the business comes first. I think uh, I'm, a, I'm kind of like a lazy boy activist at heart. And by being able to have a fruitful business that allows me to actually bring some of my ideas or my ideologies, you know, I'm able to execute that. So for me, it's, it's the business first. Yeah. Well, lazy is never a word I would think about in connection with you or history. I've heard and read so much about all the things that you've done and how hard you've worked to arrive where you are today. How important was that in your evolution? Do you think you needed all of that or do you feel like you are readier than, you know, 10 years ago. Could you have started your own business bef- before you were at Supreme the way you are now? Well, I was, I was raised by a super hardworking immigrant mom. So she put me to work when I was 13 years old. So the, I, the idea of hard work wasn't new to me when it came time to actually like get out there and make my own paycheck, but definitely working for James and working for Supreme, it, it, uh, let's just say it upped whatever I thought hard work was. It kind of like smashed that idea and reconstructed it in the most positive way that there is in order for me to have a successful business, there's no such things as any days off. Yeah. For me in my own experience, I found that there have been several occasions when I said, I don't think I'll ever work this hard again. And then you topped it somehow later on how do you find like running your own operation now? Are you feel like you're grinding as much as you ever was? Yeah, I think probably more. See, what with working for Supreme, it was, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And, and it's the same thing working for myself. It's just, it's a different kind of pressure and it's a different kind of reward. You know, I, I think it's, it's amazing to help build a company and see it reach the height or, um, the popularity of success of something like Supreme, you know, that that's amazing. And, and you're part of a team. You know, I didn't do that on my own. There was, there was many different people and elements that went into helping create that phenomenon. Whereas now it's just like, I'm the coach. I, you know, I'm, I'm playing all, you know, nine positions on the field. And then on top of that, I'm the first base coach, third base coach, you know, I'm the water boy. <laughs> 
Take out the garbage for real. Yeah, take out the garbage, you know, and then at the same time, then managing the employees and all the other stuff. So it's it's a uh, it's different, you know. I, I wouldn't say that I'm working harder and then I'm working less than where I worked at Supreme. It, it's definitely that level of hard work. I'm very grateful that James instilled that in me and it, it prepped me to get to where I'm at right now. Because the last, it's three and a half years now of post working at Supreme. Like you're saying, it's one thing is done and then it's to the next project, you know, and each project gets 125%. And that's why, you know, we've been able to have, you know, our success. You know, I'm, I'm by far not a rich man. I'm, I'm not living in some type of castle. But if it wasn't for that, for that, you know, that hard work instilled, like that hard work ethic instilled in me, I definitely would have not survived three and a half years on my own. And as I mentioned earlier, I identified your brand as importance or its essence to about giving back, using my position to try to bring more awareness. Was that one of the reasons you wanted to go off and do your own thing? Because at Supreme, I'm not sure that was really part of their brand identity in the same way. Well, I mean, to, to get to, to answer that, I have to give you a little bit, you know, context of why I feel the way I feel, why I operate the way I operate. Growing up in the early 90s here in New York City, and you know, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with some of these brands like Triple Five Soul and, and P&B Nation. And, you know, they were really rooted in, you know, there was always some type of give back and there was also some, some type of like, educational process through retail and design. And I feel like that has been lost over the last 25, 30 years, right? Of, of starting in you know, 1989, 1990 to now the present, you know, 2020. You know, that huge element has been kind of been taken out of the equation. And for me, it's injecting that back, but, you know, with my own point of view on it. So here's the thing. I'm not the owner of Supreme. I wasn't the creative director of Supreme. You know, Supreme is not my vision. I was there to, to help bring the best ideas to the table and, you know, elevate the brand to, to the best of my abilities, right? I knew, I knew what cog in the machine I played. And after a while, you know, I do have my own ideologies and I, and I do have my own vision. And you can see that in a wake. If you go to our Instagram, you know, you see it's a reflection of, of how I feel. It's a reflection of what I think. It's a reflection of, of my beliefs. And once again, in that success, you know, there's people that actually are absorbing, they're digesting, you know, we're, we're birthing almost like a new generation of kid here in New York City. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just feel like it's a really like thick question to ask. Mm -hmm. But, thank uh, you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's yeah. For me, the, the give back is important. You know, because the, the, for me, it's like the only way I could keep it is by giving it away. You know, that that's how I truly feel. I really do believe that we're we're going to be fine no matter what. Because for me, right now, like the objective isn't to you know package it and then sell it for you know fifty million right now. Like that's not my objective with Awake right now. You know, my objective is for us to stay in business and to help you know, create this platform where kids that look like me or that look like my peers have, you know, have a platform to get their ideas out or, you know, to be inspired, you know, to go back to like what I was, you know, the point that I was making about the early nineties and the mid nineties, you have all these businesses like Mecca and FUBU and, you know, and Nietzsche. There's on and on and on of, you know, businesses that are owned by people of color of, you know, African-American or Latino, like Willie Esco. And once again, in the two thousands, all that dissipated, all that disappeared. You know, so where is this next generation? Who are they being inspired by? You know, they're not, they're, they're not seeing like, so, you know, it's not Stussy's fault that they're owned by a white person or Supreme or any of these big streetwear companies. You know, they're doing what they're doing. 
that's where I see myself fitting into this kind of like equational pie of streetwear. It's like, well, this is not being fulfilled right now. And I know like there's a bunch of kids that look like me, look like my best friend Shaniqua Jarvis, Tremaine Emery, Chris Gibbs that owns Union Los Angeles. You know, like we're at the forefront of streetwear. We're the ones that, you know, are on these like corporation mood boards, you know, why are we not owning anything? You know, that, that's really the most important thing for me. Like the lesson to, to teach these kids is ownership. It is about the give back, but I wouldn't be able to give back if I didn't own my company. Because once again, like I can't go to James when I was working at Supreme, like, hey, we should do this, you know, give back to Standing Rock or do a give back for, you know, migrants stuck at the border. You know, like that, like you said, that's, that's not their mission and that's fine. That's okay because that's, they're being true to who, who they are. But for me, that's, that's why it's important for me to have Awake New York. So I'm able to teach. Three and a half years ago, when we did our first sale of like hats and hoodies, most of our proceeds, like any profits, went back to Standing Rock. And now I'm not trying to take, you know, responsibility for give back and streetwear now, but now it's common. You know, like you have all bunch of kids doing like, you know, they're going to throw up t-shirts real quick and then it's going to go to their local, some type of organization or foundation. You know, like, I love that. I don't want credit for that. But like, for me, that's the fulfillment I get with the work that I'm doing right now by being a true leader, by lead, you know, and being able to lead by example, you know, like to, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk. And I feel like that's why we're attracting like this new younger kid that's like 18, 19, 20 years old. You know, they're not the millennial. It's someone younger than the millennial that they're kind of tired of listening to the perfect MP3 recording. You know, they want to listen to a record. They want to make a mixtape. They want to make a zine. You know, like these kids are like, actually want to feel and they want to buy into a brand that they, they truly believe in. And is that like what Baka Creative is all about? I totally agree with you. And it's something that I have been working on, you know, post paper, haven't really hooked up with anybody, but I feel like the, every brand right now has to think about something like that because the kids, you know, they have a choice. There's so much out there right now. And so why, sh why am I going to wear this t-shirt? Why am I going to, you know, versus this other t-shirt? They're both great. I love them both. But one represents something more than just a design. It has some, something behind it that I support, that I want to identify with. And that's very much what you're talking about, if I understand you. So in your creative business, it's not awake where you're working with other companies. Is that something you're helping them with to understand how do I connect with these consumers who care more about these issues? And that's what's going to make them become loyal customers? That wasn't the original objective. The reason why I started Bucket Creative, the, the truth be told, I try to see where my predecessors fall short, right? And when I mean predecessors, I'm not talking about black or brown or yellow or green or Martian. I'm just talking about like streetwear, cool guy, right? Where has the cool, like the guy that was quote unquote, the hip or cool guy within the company. And then they leave and they want to do consulting on their own. And most of the times, from what I've seen, like nine times out of 10, they fall short. It's not sustainable on their own too without the big machine behind them. Because I also wasn't delusional. I understood by working at Supreme, I had a big machine behind me that gave me a platform to have a voice to whatever. So the objective with creating Bakke Creative was to be organized first and foremost, right? To be organized and to be professional and to be able to package myself not as, a, as an individual, but as an actual company. You're hiring me for a service, you know, so you're not hiring the individual Angelo Bakke, but you're actually hiring the company Bakke Creative. And then now, you know, fast forward three and a half years later, I think some companies, for example, like StockX are smartening up. They see the work that I'm doing and they know they can't 
buy their way in is, is going to sound contradictory, you know, but like they can't buy their way into philanthropy, right? Or at least full kids that suddenly they, they really believe in giving back. They're like, all right, they're smart. They have, they have good people internally to recognize like, all right, for this to feel genuine, we should be working with Bakke Creative to help us speak that language and it come from a genuine place. So yes, it's like a yes and no, because most of the work that I've done through Bakke Creative isn't for the philanthropy or the give back or figuring out like how to do something positive with money. It's, it's just ideas. It's being able to continuously do the work that I, did, that I did for Supreme, which was help build the visual identity of the brand for bigger brands. That's what I wanted to do when I left Supreme. My, like, I, didn't, I had no idea that Awake was going to do what it's doing now. That was not the goal. Like I, for me, when I left Supreme, I just wanted three clients. I wanted like a big sportswear brand, a luxury brand, and con- to continue working freelance with Supreme and just kind of sit back and just have like this easier lifestyle than I had work- <laughs> and working at the brand. Once again, that's what I'm saying. I couldn't have predicted where I, that I'd be at where I'm at today. It's all been manifested on its own. And it's just like by keeping my head down and just picking the right projects and the right people to work with, I've been able to have some, some sort of success. Well, what's the difference now? You, is it that you have more clients than you expected and doing a lot more work or having a bigger staff? I definitely have more of a staff. I think the, the difference now is to, to be able to find my flow and, and let go of fear. Because when I first left Supreme, like I was in this fear that I was going to eat cat food, you know, be eating cat food within the first six months and, you know, lose my housing and not have, a, you know, a pot to piss in, you know. So a lot of the work I was doing was based on, it was just really reactionary and fear-based. Whereas now, like, I finally found my rhythm with the agency and, and I found my rhythm with the wake. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I, my goal right now, like, my goal isn't to sell the company within a year or my goal isn't to continue, you know, just work on or work with like luxury brands on, on Bakke Creative. No, like I just want to continue working on cool projects and projects that make me feel good. Well, it's, it's kind of surprising that you would start a company uh, with those kind of fears, considering that you, you know, had this prominent position in, in, in Supreme that went, you know, became a billion dollar company while you were there that moved from the private into like a company that had big investors behind it. And didn't you have that as a possibility or interest as well to, you know, get some support so when you went off on your own, you wouldn't have to worry about those things? Or was that too much? How can I say this without creating any controversy? (laughs) That's Uh, not the goal. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, once you leave Supreme, you leave Supreme. That's it. You know, there is no going going back. And I was able to have a, a healthy relationship with them where I freelanced for two years for the brand, but I also realized that it's like, it's like the mafia. You can't have one foot in, one foot out. Is either you're all in or you're all out. But couldn't you go like, you know, I'm the guy that was at Supreme for 10 years. I need, you know, some support from, you know, there are all these venture capitalists and other companies, agencies, God knows what, that uh, I would think would be ready and willing to help you or work with you. Yeah, I thought so too. Oh, shit. Okay. That's not the reality. I, I think, um, well, here's the thing too. A lot of the work that I did for Supreme was kept quiet. So I couldn't go like banging the pot or waving the flag that I did X, Y, and Z project because that's not the Supreme way. And I also, you know, I'm also highly sensitive to maintaining the relationship that I have with James in a very healthy place. So that if I ever do need help or I ever do need existence, that that door is open and it's never closed to me. I've seen other people burn that bridge for no reason. 
you know? So I literally had to do it on my own. When I came out, like it was just, I was on my own all over again. It's from starting from scratch and not, I'm also not going to be delusional and say, because everything that you're saying is true. So certain doors did open for me that normally wouldn't open for other people, like being able to work with Nike right off the bat, working with Converse, you know, I worked with Timberland, you know, so all these relationships that I was able to build while working for Supreme definitely transcended post Supreme. But, but at the same time, like then the, the talent, you know, my talent, right. And my, my creativity has to speak for itself, you know? So there's only so much that I could do. Like you're saying, like I could get the door open by saying, Hey, I was, I was the brand director for Supreme for 10 years. Give me a shot. I get the shot. Now it's on me. I can't blame it on the stock guy or I can't blame it on, you know, or even James, like James didn't let me do it. It's his fault. You know, like it's, it's on me. Well, James is a unique individual and personality, very quiet behind the scenes guy. I, I would think he could go into the store and people wouldn't know, you know, some would obviously, but most people wouldn't recognize him. He, he's not a public figure in that respect. What did you learn from him that you feel is most important for you, what you're doing today? Back to one of your original questions is just that hard work. I watched that man work night and day. He would call me 1130 at night. I would have to pick up my phone and we would go over whatever it is that we needed to go over to, you know, like it's just that, that hard work, you know, like he, he really, really hammered that into me that, and it wasn't like he would tell me to work hard and then he would go vacation in Miami or Brazil or whatever. Like he was, he was right there in the trenches. So I'm able to instill that same, those same kind of ethics into the people that work for me now. Like they see like that, I, you know, I don't stop. I'll literally jump on a plane, take a meeting in Paris with such and such, come back, make sure that I make this meeting back in New York. And, you know, they're millennials. They're, you know, 28, 27. They haven't witnessed anything like that. You know, so they're just like, holy shit. Like, we can't believe you worked, you know, like it's, it's very eye-opening for them. Very, very eye-opening for them. Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room for a minute. The COVID virus and, you know, the world we're in now trying to come to grips with what that means for individuals and certainly for businesses. Jumping on that plane to Paris is not going to be that easy for a time as we see it. A lot of, uh, you know, retail certainly going to be suffering even worse than it was before that. In some respects, you were well prepared because you didn't go into opening a stores or trying to do a retail operation. So a lot of your work is teaming up with brands that are already big brands working. So how do you feel about that? If it's possible to even talk about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, listen, just we have to roll with the punches and we have to evolve as creatives and, and as brands because exactly what you said before, this is what I've been thinking about over the last seven weeks. You know, what I'm coming out of COVID is that there is no room for mediocre anymore. Like what, whatever t-shirts I put out, whatever graphics I put out, whatever jacket or whatever collaboration I do with brand X, like it has to be the best, you know, because in my mind, we've never been in competition because awake to me, it, we're still very small. We're, we're a very mom and pop operation, mom and pop brand. We do not compete with palace or Supreme or, I mean, I feel like there's like at least like 10 other bigger brands than a Stussy, you name them, right? Bape. But now like that kid, our, the kid that we kind of share that normally would have $1,000 to spend a month might have 400. So in a way, we are kind of competing now by default. So it just means that for me, it just, it just pushes the creativity. This is where the rubber hits the road. And 
I really honestly don't know what that means for us as an industry, but I do know what, whatever it is, how we were evolving. Like, for example, like you're saying no physical spaces and doing these drops. Like now the bigger brands are starting to really see the effects of that. They have to change. Like there has to be some fluidity to the way you work. You see us and, and on the West Coast, you have Born Raised. I think I always look at them as inspiration because I feel like they're a little bit bigger than us right now. And I've seen the way they've grown but how they're, they're giving back to the community. They did like a, buy a mask we, you know, and we'll give away a mask to like local nurses or is that kind of stuff that like it's, that's the success. You know, people, people, you know, want to buy into like the sincerity of the brand, the authenticity of the brand. So now these, I think now these bigger brands are just brands in general, just have to like really evaluate, like, who are we? What are we doing? What are we saying? What are we about? So for us, we're in a position like we've been doing that shit since day one. No, so we're, you know, and we're in a way we're good. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. We don't have to kind of hammer the narrative or convince these kids that we're into, you know, philanthropy or that we're into giving back or that we are into, you know, like having some type of like social conscious in the work that we do. You're also very much identified with New York as, you know, part of your personal story, as well as your company Awake New York. Is, is I think is still part of the brand in New York. Is that part of the name of the brand still? Yes. Yeah. So how, you know, and New York having been the epicenter of, of this whole coronavirus, obviously the city that we knew and grew up in, we're going to go back at some point and like look around. I, I did. I don't know if you're traveling around the city at all these days, but I went, I'm upstate now. I went back into Manhattan looking around and, driving around a little bit. It's a very different place. It's, it kind of reminds me back of the 80s or even early 90s, you know, when things weren't as hustle bustle as uh, we knew them recently. Are you planning any specific activations or ways to, you know, connect with New York directly as far as going forward? Here's the thing. When it comes to us, like financially giving back, so we did a we did a, about four weeks ago now. We did a COVID, a COVID archive sale, and once again, it's just thinking like, what can I do? Like I'm an asthmatic, so I have a compromised immune system. I can't go out and help out at a at a soup kitchen or at an emergency room, or you know. So it's the same thing how I felt about Standing Rock. Like I like I physically can't go and protest. So there's always power and money. So instead of like giving, donating money to like, let's say um, like a big organization, it's for me, it's about connecting locally. So for us, proceeds went to Make the Road New York and the New York Immigration Coalition. For me, it's, it's all about local, like really supporting local organizations, you know, local brands, like uh, local restaurants, local supermarkets, you know, that's how we're, we're trying to connect back to New York. We're doing our best to be just a positive light throughout this time because you're right you know right now the city's down we're down we're down you know this is like the, these times remind me <clears throat> of the late 80s of the early 90s you know 9-11 but this this is different you know there's a there's a lot more i think at play and there's a lot more i would say like psychologically that's being done to the city financially what's being done to the city that goes you know all the way up to the government so i think more now than ever it's really important for us to exist, you know, for this brand to exist. So once again, like to just spread this information, spread knowledge. I saw recently a film that it's a preview. It's not really available, but it's called All the Streets are Silent. 
the convergence of hip hop and skateboarding. Are you familiar? Do you know about that one? I haven't seen it. I, I think I saw somebody um, post about it. It was like the early 90s. Yeah, it's all about Zoo York and, yeah. uh, and Supreme and with a lot of great footage of the kids skating in those days. Harold Hunter, of course, you know, legendary from that scene as well as others. And the convergence of hip hop with skate culture, which wasn't really connected at, at that point. And also... Cannabis was a big part of, of that whole scene as well. And, you know, today cannabis is becoming part of the mainstream and likely to become even more so because of the economic potential and how many states in the country is probably going to, you know, need to stimulate the economy. Yet, uh, you know, and it also has like a big underground scene, right, with its own design sensibility and that's that's still there, even though it's like half underground, half overground. Is that something that you would ever address in your world of, of business? Do you find brands are looking into that or open to that? Or is it still something that's pretty much, you know, kept down? Me personally, that has, and this is me, Angelo Bacche. I've been sober over five and a half years now. So I... I get conflicted, you know, because I'll get a, you know, let's say liquor brand X that wants to do a project and they want me to come in and, and, uh, me personally, like we want you to promote whiskey X. I'm like, I, I can't do that. You know, like that's just, that's not part of my lifestyle, you know, so I can't really promote something that I just, I just don't partake in anymore. And I guess the same thing with weed, I, I think like, like weed culture and streetwear or skating, like, yeah, it goes, it goes hand in hand, you know, same thing with hip hop. I mean, part of the reason why I smoke weed was because I fucking love Cypress Hill so much. You know, <laughs> and, and I had be real on the show recently. Yeah. Some great stories. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. I mean, they were like trying to think like it was like them and the beat nuts were like literally like the only Latino hip hop acts in the early nineties. Did you watch the LA originals documentary? No. You should watch I? it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I didn't realize that Estevan Oriol was their road manager. Oh, so yeah, he, no, I did see that. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so there's a lot of cool, and, and that, I, I forgot, I think it was like Scotty Kahn was talking about the times, and he was like, yo, we were down with, with Soul Assassins, you know, we were down with Cypress. So, like, he's like, besides, like, Dr. Drain the Chronic and Biggie, like, this was, like, huge. And he was right. I totally forgot how big Cypress Hills, House of Pain, Funk Dubious, like that, like kind of LA hip hop movement, how it was such a thing. And weed was such a big thing, you know, part of that. I don't know if that answers your question, but any type of like drug reference, it's like, it's so ingrained in skating and it's so ingrained in hip hop and graffiti. Cause I come from more of a graffiti background. It's huge in, in graffiti culture. And it's, a, it's not taboo. That's the thing. It's not taboo. Yeah, it's not taboo, but I feel like there's, it hasn't been really celebrated openly in 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 the scene of the streetwear world. Because I think it's corny. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you know, okay. like no, nobody wants to put a fucking big weed leaf on a t-shirt and like, yo, what's up? You know, like, yeah, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying to think about like, I'm also like a huge like, but like, there's ways to be funny about it. Like, for example, like Palace, like they do so many fucking weed references in their graphics, like because mm -hmm. they're potheads. They're always talking about, you know, yeah. smoking, smoking a spliff. It's funny because it's cheeky and it's British and it's them, you know, but I think if you like, if you try to make it a part of like your mission statement, like we are 
brand X from California and we love weed and we're doing this, you know, Bob Marley collaboration. That, no, life. but that's exactly my point that that's a line from, you know, from there to something that's more sophisticated, that's integrated into a regular line, but not made into the line, you know, so it's not about weed, but it it also has it as part of their DNA, which is very much part of the streetwear world from day I you, one. I, I think you just look at people's graphics. You can tell people that are smoking weed. <laughs> <It's a little laughs> <job>. <laughs> okay. I, I was Googling CEO awake because I was doing some research and landed on a, a page that said, what keeps a lot of CEOs awake at night? Mm. I was just looking you up, but then I thought, well, maybe this would be a good question for you as well. What keeps you awake at night and how do you fix it? Bills. Okay, bills. <laughs> I, I would give you their answer. You know, their, the answers they, obviously it's another level of CEO, but trade wars, talent shortages, geopolitics, climate change, disruption, and cybersecurity. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any of those. <laughs> so what, paying bills? Bills are probably the biggest one and just like fictitious, other fictitious scenarios that go on in my head, you know, late at night. And for me, the remedy right now is is meditation. You know, first thing in the morning, I meditate anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes. I have to meditate each morning. After you meditate, what do you do? I read. You read? Uh, yeah, I'll read like a passage and it just helps ground me, you know, helps me get back into reality. Because you know, the truth is that everything is fine today. You know, I have a roof over my head. My company's fine. There's money in the bank. I got food in the fridge. That meditation helps me really connect with gratitude. So do you still have plans for other, like a bookstore, publishing, all these other kind of ventures that, that you were thinking about? No, I, I think you could relate to this, but I figured out that there's no money in books. <laughs> so, Damn, yes. Yeah, there's no, there's no money in printed matter. So the, the, two, the two books that we published through Bucket Creative Press were, were really just love letters to my best friends. Shaniqua Jarvis, I was in a position, I was in a financial position where I was like, you know what, I'm going to print your book. You know, that's something that, you know, I, I just wanted to support her as, as much as I, as I could at that time. And it felt like printing her book was the best thing that I could do. And I, and I find that the, another big problem that my community has had is that financially we can't compete, right? What I learned in art and specifically in photo history when I went to SVA as a photo history was, was um, comprised of the rich. Only the rich can go and pick up a camera during the Great Depression and travel the world, right? So you have all these beautiful black and white images that basically were created by the rich. And that, that kind of transcends to today. You have all these beautiful books that, you know, these, these one-time, you know, these photographers will put out their one-time books and it's amazing. They'll get Art Director X to do it and they'll get it printed in Belgium. And I told Shaniko, I was like, fuck it. I got the money to be able to do something like that for you. Let me do that. Because the objective for Bakke Creative Press is whatever body of work we print, I want it to, I want it to stand with a, you know, a Stieglitz. I want it to be able to stand next to a Bruce Davidson book. Why not? Why do our books have to be cheap? Why does it have to be printed cheap? Why does it have to be art directed cheaply? Why should we cut corners? You know, so that was really the objective when I printed Shaniko's book. And then a year later, I printed Rafael Rios' book, who's my other best friend we met at SVA. And we literally were the only, like we were only two brown kids in the whole fucking school. You know what I mean? And that's, that's part of the main reason why we connected back in 2001. 
And the same thing, he was about to self-publish and I said, you know what, I, I'm financially, I'm doing okay, let me publish this book for you. And yeah, that's, that's where I'm at right now. So the idea to open up that bookstore was to kind of like start a little community center based around those two books. Once again, like that takes money. And then Awake started taking off. So I really didn't have the, you know, there's only so much that I could do on my own. Are you still f- taking pictures yourself? Are you still f- photographing? Yeah, I'm still photographing. Photographing, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, been, I've been shooting most of our campaigns. I shot our lookbook yesterday. I, sh- I shot my friend Maluka's album cover last summer. I, I honestly only want to take pictures if I really believe in the project. Like to me, you know, for me, I've been able to, over the last six months, fall in love with photography again. Because I also, I stigmatize myself because I fucking hate art directors that take pictures. I cannot stand art directors. <laughs> like, no, like. No, no names, please. Yeah. No names, no names. But if they're offended, then, then you I must be talking about you. But I cannot stand art directors that take pictures. So in my position at Supreme, I was very comfortable with not being behind the camera and helping create the picture, right? But now I'm at a point in business where I know, I, I know what I want the picture to look like. Everything, because I, you know, 10 years working with Terry, with Ari, with, you know, Tyrone LeBon, you know, Hannah, helping birth careers, like a lot of these people, with the exception of Terry and Ari, but like there's a lot of young photographers that I was their first like big commission, that first big check and being able to be with them, you know, on their, on their tra- trajectory to, you know, that, that next level of where they had to get to. So it's like I had that experience as an art director and I had the technical experience as a photographer. So now I'm able to come back to it, do a 360. When I first started at Supreme, I was taking pictures. Like, you know, I had, I had just actually dropped out of school. So it's been, it's been nice. So who are your heroes in photography? That's a good question. I love Bruce Davidson. I remember I got shitted on for liking Avedon in school. I remember my, my fine art printing teacher was just like, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Avedon, Davidson, Helmut Newton. I know I'm, I'm forgetting a bunch. but Sure. Well, I mean, Davidson and Newton are like two opposite ends of the pole, aren't they? Yeah. But I, I think uh, what I really loved about Dave, well, Davidson, it's not pretty, right? But it is pretty in its, in its own way. And, and, and it's, it's street uh, very often. It's, right? Yeah, very street and raw, you know, like Jamel Shabazz. Love Ari's work too, Jeanette Beckman. You have like those early 80s, because those are the pictures I grew up looking at, you know, like by looking at, you know, paper or the source or rap pages, um, you know, ID magazine, days. That's what shaped me as a creative was looking at those pictures that I inspired. And then you have someone like, I remember the first time I saw Avedon's work, I was like, this is beautiful. You know, like I want to learn how to do this. That studio, very studio photography. Very studio, yeah, natural, natural lit, and it's it's about the subject and and capturing you know the true essence of that subject. When in some of these portraits, you can see you can see right through the subject. You can see the vulnerability. You can see the fear, the anxiety. But that's that's, that's exactly where I want uh, where I, what I want to do with my picture. Uh, you spoke earlier about how few people of color are in the industry, but at the same time, you're 
part of a new group of people or you know not so new necessarily but a an influential and important new group of people of color in the industry I'll cite like Virgil Abloh, Shane Oliver, Heron Preston who all of your friends and have you have worked with them and affiliated with them so do you feel like there is a resurgence or a greater acceptance today for people of color in in the streetwear world it seems to me it's if there's a place you know that you can find something of positive impact that that's one of the few places i would say yes and no and and i'll tell you why we we are needed because it's a necessity because we're cool okay and that's why that's why i stress ownership you know because we're we'll be used until we're not that's why I stress ownership so much, you know, because the truth is that the industry is really the kids. If the kids decide next year that we're not cool or that, you know, you pick anybody, you know what I mean? Like from like uh, from the old guard, you know, they decide that this is, you know, this is the way we should be going. Then that's it. Like this is over. Yeah, you know, and totally. then, so that that's why I say yes and no. Like, is, is there a change? Yeah. But, there, you know, there's a big catch. Virgil and Heron, you know, they work for two really big machines. At least they own, you know, Virgil owns Off-White. Heron has his own brand. For me, it's, it's really big on supporting one another, you know, and, and, and learning from each other's mistakes and also opening up the books. I think uh, where my, our, like our predecessors have fallen short is there's this fear. If I show you how to do it, somehow it's going to take away from what I have on my plate. I'm really, I'm a big believer in a power, you know, strength in numbers. When this COVID shit hit, like I had a Virgil, I had a Sponto from Born and Raised, I had a Tremaine Emery, Chris Gibbs, like I had up, I had up all my peers to be like, yo, what do we do? You know, Melody Asani, because once again, like somebody, somebody has to initiate that dialogue. There's still a lot of bravado in this industry. There's still a lot of machismo. There's a lot of you know ego, and for me, like when it comes to like needing help, like I have, like I'm ready. My I push my ego to the side. Like this is the only way we're going to be able to really succeed. Fashion and streetwear have come together to such an extent that there is no real difference between the two. I had uh, Aaron Levant on uh, talking the other day about sort of how watching this progression from streetwear completely underground to mass where it is today and now being embraced by fashion. So is streetwear lost its identity? There's, there's a certain sect of streetwear that hasn't lost its identity. It's just become part of mainstream pop culture. That's all. Here's the thing. Until, until like those big houses start looking to people like myself and like Chris Gibbs or like Melody, they're not going to be able to catch up. So they're, they're only capitalizing on a certain sect and a certain look and a certain feel of streetwear. You know, so I think back in January, Virgil says something to the effect that like streetwear is dead. Because this was during Men's Fashion Week, all these reporters were coming to me trying to like goat me to say something against Virgil, and it's like I don't, I don't not disagree with him to that extent, you know, like because prior to this becoming streetwear, it was something else, right? Like it wasn't really categorized; it was called urban or urban wear. This is an evolution of it that. It was called a t-shirt. Yeah, it was t-shirt. called jeans. <laughs> yeah, no, but I'm sweatshirts. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> talking know. about you know like the early early two thousands, you yeah, know, like that. of course. You know, like from like the 50 Cent and, you know, Rockaware and all that stuff, you know, like this is, this is where we're at now, right? It goes from that to this. That was part of mainstream uh, culture. The only thing is like that was never adapted or adopted by 
luxury, right? Because, you know, luxury continued to be luxury. It, it kept profiting whatever it needed to in order to sustain. Whereas now that, let's say, like 50 plus consumer is irrelevant. They're not moving the dial like that financially for these companies. It's, it's really the 13 to 40 year old, right? That's really dictating financially how these, these companies move. So, you know, so crazy. You look at a case study like Supreme, they're like, oh shit, we want to be like that. You know, before I used to be the other way around. We aspired to be like a luxury brand. And now it's the other way around. Like they, they've lost their identity. It's the other way around. Streetwear hasn't lost its identity. Streetwear is going to continue being streetwear. You know, it's so long as, for example, with me, like the best thing you asked me about COVID is that it's, it's brought me back to my, my DIY roots when I didn't have a fucking pot to piss in. You know what I'm saying? Like, I need to figure it out. Like yesterday, I had to figure out how to shoot my lookbook. How do I make this happen without all these? Normally, like I have an assistant. I got all these things, you know, you know at my availability, at my disposal. Now it's like, it's back to me. Literally $20 in my pocket. How do we make this happen today? And, and still make it look like a $10,000 lookbook, right? Those big companies don't know how to move like that. The people that are in those companies don't know how to move like that. Those presidents don't know how to operate like that. But James does, because James comes from those roots. James, you know, he started, he started in, a, in which I'm going to call it, in, a, in the flea market on Spring Street, Spring and Wooster. James knows like, how, to, how to make something from nothing. You know what I'm saying? So like, that, that's why Supreme is able to move differently. That's why Awake moves differently. You know, people that are in Chris Gibbs or Union Los Angeles, we're, we're able to adapt to what's happening right now. So we don't, we don't lose who we are. I think, honestly, I think it's the other way around because these brands, you, you look at, like, what the fuck is, you know, besides, I say I'll, Gucci's actually probably doing the best job and Vuitton now with Virgil, but you look at all the other brands, like, it's a mess. Like MCM doesn't know who they are. You know, one moment they're collaborating with Bape and the next minute they do, I don't know, you know, it's, it's messy. All luxury is messy right now. Yeah, they're all groping. I remember those days and I guess it was the 90s at paper when we had the fashion companies advertising and then we had like the up and coming streetwear brands advertising and each one was trying to become the other or become recognized by the other. You know, the fashion companies wanted to be hip, so the streetwear companies would would take them seriously. And then the and the streetwear wanted to be like recognized by the fashion. So paper was like a nice place for all of that to happen. And it's true that it's flipped at this point with regard to what you were saying with the big fashion companies groping and trying to figure things out. And I like your point as well about, uh, you know, being able to shoot your own lookbook because uh, you know how to do it and you don't need a full staff. Whereas these big companies, nobody's shooting, nobody is, is making videos, nobody's going into the studios. So, you know, they're pretty much stuck as is. Well, thank you very much, Angelo. Thank you. For talking with me. This was really great, far reaching. Appreciate uh, everything you're, you're sharing with us and hope to see you soon, F2F. Likewise, and uh, you know, continue success with you. And, and thanks for all the work that you've done in the past. Thanks for inspiring us. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash light culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Mm-hmm.